Welcome to the EMS on the Mountain podcast, a show for those interested in austere and wilderness medicine. This podcast provides insight into the unique aspects and challenges of bringing modern EMS into wilderness and austere environments. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of EMS on the Mountain. Uh, we are once again on the mountain. If you listen to a previous episode, you'll know that we are actually recording on site up here on duty in our shack of a building. Uh, <laughs> hey, it's nice they let us use it, so we're happy with it. Yeah, it's better than sleeping it, it's, in a It's tank. out of the elements, so that's a good thing because we've had some pretty poor weather lately. Yeah. So today we're just going to have a brief discussion talking about resources and some of the limitations and significant differences between an urban EMS response. And keep in mind, when we talk about an urban response today, we're not talking about your system, not necessarily my system or Mike's system or any other myriad of places that are out there. We know everybody's agency is a little bit different. What resources get assigned to what calls varies from place to place. So please don't go, oh, my God, you don't get that with this. You should. Or, wow, that's so much for that type of call. Agreed, it might be. So there are going to be differences. But what we're really kind of getting at is what you tend to see on the urban side is not at all what you're going to see when you enter the wilderness, austere, and backcountry type environments. As an example, something we were talking about just before we started recording this show, if I get a call down to a local shopping center. They've got a street fair going on and somebody took a bad step off the curb and we think there might be a broken ankle. They're going to send me, send a medic unit. They might send a BLS unit depending on what's closest, but we'll assume it's me. And you're going to get most likely an engine company to come along. And the engine company is not coming because we need extra medical manpower. They're coming to literally be manpower and help me lift a patient who cannot walk or stand on their own and help me get them into the back of my unit. The same patient who is hiking a, what we'll say, a relatively benign trail on a beautiful day in lovely Park X has a bad step. They weren't paying attention. Suddenly there was a root, a rock. A squirrel jumped up and scared them. Who knows? They end up breaking the same ankle. If you put x-rays up side by side or overlaid them, you'd see the identical fracture. The difference is, it's no longer a 10-minute response to get five-plus people to your side to get you treated, evaluated, stabilized, loaded into an ambulance, and on your way to see a doctor. So in the backcountry, that call has to, A, hope you have cell service, make its way to the local park or other jurisdiction, 911 center. The appropriate resource then has to be dispatched. Someone sent out on scene to find you, make sure that you are indeed injured. There are a lot of false reports or over-exaggerated injuries. We've seen people that had multiple fractures of legs come walking out of the trail on us before. And then assess the patient, determine, can this person walk? If they cannot walk and they need to be carried out, well, then you have to start getting those other resources. So a lot of times the initial resource isn't an ALS or a BLS ambulance unit with a minimum of two personnel on it, it's going to be more than likely one lone responder. Whoever is closest to that particular trail is going to be sent on that trail to locate the patient and confirm that there is indeed a patient 
and their described or reported injuries are accurate and provide a patient update. And once you get that, then the resourcing comes into play. No longer do you get an engine company that's just going to pull up behind you or maybe get there ahead of you, depending on where they were already at. So when you make that call of, I need additional resources, the patient is definitely unable to walk, obvious deformity, they have to be carried out. Okay, so that starts a resourcing problem. How many people does it take to carry out, we'll say, a mid-sized 150-pound human five miles out of the woods? There are some studies that have shown it's anywhere from four to eight people per mile of travel is, is your minimum number for planning. Well, and Mike will tell you too, he probably does the same thing is you got to kind of look at what trail you're on, where you're at. Yep. Are we taking this patient uphill, downhill? Is this one of those seldom used, not as well-maintained, much more challenging single track trails? Or is this one of the wider, heavily used paths that are pretty easy to negotiate? Because that changes number of people and types of equipment you need to bring with you. Almost always, that piece of equipment is going to be a Stokes basket. Where we're at, we use a single wheel underneath, basically a large ATV-type tire that mounts underneath that thing. So you basically balance your Stokes basket on top of this tire, and you get four to six responders around it, and you just wheel it down the trail. Now, that can vary. You know, if you've got a really narrow trail, you might only get to have one person in front and one person in back, which is a lot more physically demanding. So you got to switch them out a bit more often, but it still gets the job done. So we're going to assume we have a moderate trail, 150 pound patient, Stokes basket and the wheel. And we just need to be able to move them three miles down to the trailhead uh, where we'll be met by another local EMS agency uh, transport vehicle. Right now, once you make that call for where m me and Mike do our, our primary backcountry wilderness our work, that's going to take you at least at least two hours to start getting additional resources on scene. And that's because you're three miles down trail. So people already have to, A, muster up, collect their backcountry gear if it's not already in their vehicles, get to the trailhead, which might not be right next to wherever they were, and then hike that three miles in. Now, we like to assume everybody's going to do a quick 10-minute mile hiking in, and we know that's not the case. If they're having to hike uphill, that is definitely not the case. So your best-case scenario is estimating maybe a 20- or 30-minute mile if they're moving pretty light and quick. Yeah, you're pumping. I'm saying light and quick. Like, you're not carrying additional ropes or medical equipment or patient care equipment or things like that. That is... You are the responder and a light day pack. Yeah, a light day pack, yep. So now they got relatively even trail. Oh, yeah. And that and we're talking, you know, a mid-range decent trail. Yeah. Right? Where not significant elevation gain. Like I said, it'll take you longer. So now I'm looking at for you, you know, again, that's where we get that two hours, because you take about an hour and a half for you to hike that three miles at least. Or we'll say that on average. Uh, and then you're gonna be there. Now, if you are the first crew coming in. We'll assume the Stokes basket and some other equipment is also at the lot ready to go. Now we're going to ask you to carry a Stokes basket, the wheel. Uh, you might roll it up the trail empty. You might load some additional equipment, like if we think there might be some ropes required, technical rescue equipment. Uh, the ropes and rigging equipment might get strapped inside that Stokes basket. And now the initial four to six people that show up, you're going to be told, okay, here's your basket, here's the gear, get going. 
and they're going to get sent. And then whoever is working down there in the staging area is going to collect up the next group of rescuers and say, okay, we got another four or six here. They're going to send them down trail. So now we'll say we have 10 people on trail coming to help you. So now once they get there, you're at 11 total people. So if you go back to our math of anywhere from four to six, maybe eight people per mile, you are barely at the threshold of moving this person at three miles. You've got 11 people with an ideal number being somewhere between 12 and 20. And I would say between 12 and 20 is probably, for me, Mike and I's experience, particularly where we operate, is a very average response number for a carryout. Yep, sounds about right. And again, that all depends on the time of year, what season it is, if it's very early in the season here. And there are a lot of seasonal employees where we are. And if those folks aren't here yet, you have a very limited number of permanent personnel to draw from. Because in the off-season, they don't staff as many people at all times during the day, assuming this happens midday. And there's a pool of – we haven't really talked about this yet on the podcast, but this – I feel like every time we record one of these, I end up saying, oh, that's the thing we should record. We should probably talk about resourcing and volunteers and where wilderness resources come from because it isn't the same thing as an urban fire system. Right. Uh, and I don't know. Most folks may not be too interested in that, but it is – the way resourcing works for wilderness rescue is significantly different than yeah. uh, yes. the way it works in an urban environment. We should probably talk about that too. So anyway, continue. Yeah. And, and that's really what this is about, right? Yeah. So in the urban environment, I get on scene and I need more people. I just call dispatch and say, hey, can you send me you know, another engine for manpower? Maybe I've already got an engine with me, but this turns out to be a very large bariatric patient. It's like, hey, you know dispatch, send me another engine. I need more manpower, you know, for bariatric patient removal. And they'll be like, oh, okay, here's, here's an available unit and they'll send them to me. And they'll show up in about 10 minutes because it's at that point non-emergent. Even in a super rural environment, you will typically be able to tone for and have enough responders to come to the station or come directly to the scene to get a decent number of people to help. Sometimes in a much more rural environment, much more wilderness environment, it can take hours to gather the people needed to uh, actually do the extrication. Yeah. And, and again, so it, again, it varies depending on where you're working. So now you've got your 12 people. How long is that going to take you to move one patient three miles? And we'll assume you're getting to go downhill. We'll make it fun. And you're not going to require any sort of technical rescue. I hate you. There's nothing fun about that. Downhill is harder than uphill. It is. Yeah. Downhill in many respects is harder but it is the faster. It is faster. <laughs> yeah, it's hard, and it's harder for uh, various reasons. We're not going to talk about that. You've got 12 people, and we'll assume you're going to put six people on the litter at a time, which means you've only got one other group to rotate out with. Mm -hmm. So you're going to end up fatiguing your rescuers very quickly. For those who have never, even on a wheeled litter, if you've never carried a patient, even, and again, 150 pounds, I'm saying is is probably on the light side of most people that get carried out. The super small people, the fit and thin ones, are usually not the ones that get hurt. So if you've got a 150-pound person, I think I've had two. Anyway. When you get a really small light person, you can do as I've once done with uh, another partner of ours. And we just <laughs> alternated doing piggybacks yeah. out of the woods. When you get a very large person, there's no piggybacking. No. And no. Not for any significant distance anyway. I won't say I haven't seen it done, but – 
Yeah, it's it's also not the preferred technique. You get into patient safety, blah, blah, blah. We get it. You know that guy too, don't you? Sometimes you just got to make things happen to keep the patient moving in the right direction. So again, you're back down to 12 people moving one person. Something else to remember is you might also be having to corral all of their family members or friends that are hiking with them. Where we're at, because we are very close, well, not very close, but we are, well, we're for a national park. We are very close to a major metropolitan area. We have a lot of day hikers. You have a lot of young college groups, you know, a bunch of friends that get together and want to come and camp and hike. And so you might have yourselves, your crew, the patient, and then anywhere from four to six, eight, ten other friends. Now, the good news, if they're on the young, healthy side of the college population, they are often very eager and willing to help you carry their friend, which is good. Uh Put those people to work if you feel comfortable doing so. If not, just say, ah, no thanks. Feel free to follow behind us or go ahead of us. Mm -hmm. But please don't get lost when we get to the parking lot so that you know where your friend went. Bottom line, the 12 of you are going to move this one patient three miles and it's going to take you hours. I would say safely probably three hours to move three miles. Yeah, that's fair. And some of you listening are going to go, Three hours, my God, how slow are you going? And the answer is slow. Then there's there's a lot of factors in that. No trail. Like we have one, what we'll call a paved trail. It's not paved, it's just graded, finished nicely uh, for wheelchair handicap access. It's a beautiful trail, but it's the only one that is completely flat and smooth. The rest of them all have rocks, they all have roots, they all have water bars, twists and turns. You have to lift, you have to push, you have to pull. It's exhausting work and it takes a while to do it. So now we are at three hours of movement to evacuate your patient, two hours for that crew to have even gotten on scene. So now you're at a five hour total plus the maybe hour or more of the initial responder. So now you're six plus hours into this, what we'll call initial patient contact. This is why resource availability is a big deal in the wilderness and austere environments. Now, this is an easy rescue. Let's let's think about that. If we are somewhere else, like we are out west in the Rockies, the Sierras, other places that are less accessible, like I can't drive essentially to a parking lot at the trailhead. I have to drive to a central parking lot and then take another sub-trail that leads me to the other trailhead that I have to get on. There's additional hiking and movement time. Right. And in a lot of those places, the terrain, the terrain here where we work, the elevation is not high, but there's a lot of elevation gain and it goes uphill fairly steeply. It's not as gentle rolling hills like you would really want it to be for your own comfort and ease. So the, it's certainly not some, some environment down in Tennessee, but it is not, uh, it is not always an easy day. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And again, you go back to your the exact same injury on the urban side. And inside of 15 minutes, I've got my patient in the back of an ambulance and IV started, some pain medications administered, and I'm well on my way to the hospital. That patient is within 30 minutes, possibly 30 minutes of actual injury, is being evaluated in an emergency department by a physician going, yeah, let's get some scans. That definitely looks broken. How's your pain? You know, given a north a nurse some orders to help you take care of some more pain management until x-ray shows up and they go, oh yeah, that's definitely fractured. We're going to call ortho in. Mm -hmm. And then you start seeing some specialists and maybe they just need to 
make sure it's put in place and your circulation, everything is good. And then they're going to cast you up and send you on your way. Mm-hmm. Well, you've had a broken ankle now in the, in this austere environment for over six hours. And if you get an ALS provider on scene, you've had access, hopefully to some decent pain management. Keeping in mind when, uh, there's an episode we're, we're doing about pain management in the wilderness. I don't know if that one will be released before or after this episode, but look out for that one. And pain management over a six-hour period can be challenging when you have a limited supply of drugs. Mm-hmm. If it is a single ALS responder where we are, I have just a couple of vials of fentanyl, uh, same with morphine and ketamine. Uh, I have a very large vial of ketamine, and if you are tolerating ketamine, that's probably what I'm going to go to simply because I have more of it that I can keep you comfortable for the duration of this patient evacuation. And we're not going to get too deep into that right now because, like I said, we have a whole another episode talking about that discussion. So resourcing becomes a big deal. Same thing. Mike brought it up before the show. Wasn't quite sure if we should talk about it. But a cardiac arrest. Cardiac arrest goes out in a traditional urban environment. You're automatically going to get at least one medic unit perhaps an EMS supervisor or equivalent, an engine company at a minimum, maybe another BLS transport unit is going to show up depending on, you know, where you are. And again, we're talking about a, we'll say a moderate urban system. Again, Mm -hmm. if you're rural, some of those resources might still take some time to get to you, but they're still going to show up in a reasonable time frame to be of, of beneficial use on a cardiac arrest. So the code call comes out, first unit on scene gets in there, confirms, yep, cardiac arrest, begins CPR. And if they have an ALS provider with them, they can begin running through their ACLS algorithm and protocols and and start doing work. If it's a BLS crew, I know where I work. Our BLS providers using the same monitors, just essentially they put in AED mode. And if it says shock, they do. If they don't, they continue with BLS CPR mm-hmm. until the ALS providers get there and we work it. I know there are some jurisdictions near both Mike and I that a cardiac arrest will end up having 12 plus responders on scene. And of that 12, six to 10 of them might be advanced life support personnel. Mm-hmm. So you have a lot of help able to do all of the things to give that cardiac arrest patient the best chance of, of surviving. If you go into cardiac arrest in the woods or a wilderness environment, your only hope is it was near a trailhead. There was a, CPR savvy bystander who watched you go down immediately began CPR while somebody else was able to get on 911 and call for a response. Now, here's the problem. If people like Mike and I are not on duty and you're relying on the other personnel to show up, it's going to be piecemeal. Again, onesie twosies Mm -hmm. showing up and flowing in. And it might take a while for their ambulance transport unit to get on scene. And even still, you might only have six responders going at that point. And are they equipped? Right? And, and yeah, and they're, you know, they're, they're not set up for, or we'll call it the urban cardiac arrest scenario. And that's just the nature of, of the location, the work, and the environment, right? We have a whole episode about the environment. Yeah, and that's okay. And, and it is what it is. So as unfortunate as it is, People that go into cardiac arrest in the wilderness environment generally don't make it. Uh, and we're not saying that's the case for every single one of them. But because things are much more delayed, getting some of this care that might have made a difference and 
you know, if you're, I, at least I'm hoping, if you're a paramedic or a doctor who's listening to this, you're staying up with the science and you know that there's not a lot of stuff beyond CPR and ventilating your patient that is really proven truly beneficial. I mean, I can sling epinephrine into you all day and make you have a heart cardiac rhythm. It doesn't mean your heart's actually doing anything, but mm. epinephrine's telling electrical conduits to, you know, make things happen. Do stuff. So, yeah, we recover a lot of corpses. We make zombies, people who may get, we'll call, you know, return of spontaneous circulation, ROSC. Yeah, sure, we transform them to the hospital and their neurological function afterwards is, is horrible. Yeah. So we save people who probably should not have just quality of life stuff. But that's, I digress. Mm. So again, it comes down to resources, right? Cardiac arrest in the urban environment, I'm going to have at a minimum five, six people on scene within minutes. And then it's going to grow a little bit after that within another five minutes or so. And I'm set. I've probably got more hands at a certain point that I, than I have tasks to assign to. Uh, especially where I run, we use a Lucas device for CPR. So once the Lucas gets on scene and we start it and going, that frees up several providers from having to do manual compressions. And we can put them to work on other things. In the backcountry here, we do not, as of yet, have a mechanical CPR device. So I'm eating up at least two of my responders doing pushing. chest compressions. Yep. One pushing, one resting. And then they alternate on hopefully the two-minute cycles. And I know Mike and I have been part of that, that party before. There were three of us who yeah. were cycling through CPR for 45 minutes before we, was, we decided to, to terminate efforts. Yeah. All right. And again, they got 45 minutes of solid CPR, ACLS work. Uh, and they actually got bystander CPR before we arrived. So that person, while they had a, the best chance they were going to get, considering where they were, still – the total medical response on that was Mike and myself, a paramedic, uh, two paramedics. Two paramedics. And that was it. And Mike and I, I believe we're still, this was years ago. Don't remember if we were advanced DMTs. I think we were advanced DMTs at the time. I don't remember. So actually, I know we were advanced DMTs. But, and that just goes to show you, it was like, you know, there were four providers that were there within that same 10 minute time frame, vice, you know, over a half a dozen ALS providers mm -hmm. and resourcing is just different. And so it's just something you have to think about if you're getting into this, this world for the first time, or you're starting to plan and think about it. Maybe you're just recently joined an organization that provides uh, remote EMS support, or you've volunteered at a state park, national park, someplace, because you find this interesting and you've been an urban EMS provider for a long time. There's, there's no calling for an engine company. It doesn't exist. No matter how critical or traumatic the patient's injuries are, what you have is what you have. There have been instances where the only people available were Mike and I and one other person, because that's all that was literally available. And we have another episode coming up where we're going to talk about a very specific call we had that essentially, well, there's two, there's one this year. And then one a couple of years ago, we took every uh, available resource in the park that we support, came mm -hmm. to the scene and was there. If another significant event had gone out, there was nobody left to respond. Okay, there might have been one or two you could have peeled off of each one, but that was it, one or two. So resourcing becomes a significant issue in the wilderness environment. Same way it works in a 
rural agency, right? Uh, especially a run from home agency. It's for those folks that are familiar with run from home models, uh, a concept of dual dispatch is sometimes used. Occasionally I've heard of terms like triple dispatch. Essentially all you're doing is sending multiple units because you're not sure who's going to get out the door first. Uh, it's wilderness is similar to that, but it's also uh, complicated or multiplied by the fact that you don't even know who's coming, but then once they start coming, it can be 45 minutes, an hour, hour and a half before they get to where they need to go. And then they need to hike. And then once they're hiking, they need to get to where they need to be. And you only usually in most areas only have enough people for one, maybe two responses and you're tabbed. Yeah. That's just the way it is. And I I guess the last point we'll make about resources in the uh, wilderness austere environment is you might say, Hey, you might be a BLS provider. You know, you're an EMT or maybe you're a wilderness first responder, wilderness first aider. You come across somebody that needs help and you have cell service. You're trying to get the call and it's like, Hey, I need, I need an ALS provider. This is what I see. This is what's going on. There may not be one available to come. And that's a huge resource limitation. Uh, very seldom does that happen in the urban environment. I know it does. I know where I work, we've hit what is known as status zero for medic units before because things just suddenly erupt and there's nobody left. Does that uh, literally mean there's no one around? There is no available unit. And that's when they start doing, you know, that jurisdictional mm-hmm. mutual aid stuff to bring people in to help cover. Yeah, this mm-hmm. this particular day, there was a very large working structure fire going out and a lot of other pretty serious calls mm-hmm. going on at the same time. Yeah, one of them was a, a shooting that my unit went to you know, this major house fire that was eating up almost all the fire resources plus several transport units. So, I mean, it it happens. It's, it's rare. Uh, And again, I I run in, we'll say a mid-sized jurisdiction. Like if you're in Boston or Chicago and you hit status zero, man, that's, it's a bad day for that city, right? Because they just have so many more units available, but it is a thing. It can happen depending on where you're at. Uh, so just again, remember when it comes to resourcing, you're not ever going to get what you need. And when you do get people that show up, you might not get the type you need. You might not get that ALS response or, or the the big hefty crew of, of 200 pound plus fit firefighters to come help you lift things. So yep. things to keep in mind. Things to keep in mind. And that's all I got, Mike. What else? Yeah. I mean, I'm going to stop stuttering. And start saying words. And those words are going to be, it's just different. I can't draw, I, I, I endeavored to start recording this by thinking about analogies, but there are no analogies. The wilderness is the wilderness. Yeah. Uh, That's what makes this environment so unique and what makes practicing medicine in this place fun and different. Yeah. I've got a friend that, that works, that, that does work on Mount Hood. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, or, you know, I, I know some guys from Portland Mountain Rescue. Mountain Rescue, Wilderness Rescue, it's just different. And yeah. it's. It's not only different in that the number of people and the things you get or the resourcing you get is different. It's different in the people that are drawn to do the work. Mm, True. Right? I spend time in urban environments. I spend time in rural environment. I spend time in a wilderness environment. And there are three different skill sets and three different types of people. I happen to be really broken and really like medicine, and it's my hobby. Yeah. But typically, you're not going to find a whole lot of folks that that say, hey, man, I, I want to ride an urban fire truck and do the adventure and run into a burning building and then say, oh, yeah, and also on my weekends, I want to go walk 12 
15, 18 miles into the woods and help carry somebody out for 13 hours. It's just a different type of person. Yeah. And just as a fun anecdote, there have been a couple of times when we've had uh, local EMS fire responses come up to uh, assist because it was a bigger incident. We needed more people. And the looks on some of those paramedics or firefighters' faces saying, hey, you guys ready? And they're like, for what? And it's like, no, they there's a reason they want to be on urban fire trucks and stuff and and they're not out there with you already it's that's not their jam it's just not their jam and when you tell them yay zip those boots up my friend we're going walking yeah some of them get that sad sad puppy dog look on their faces but that is what it is it's uh nothing against them that's just their chosen path and i don't blame them i don't want to be forced into well i don't like doing fire so i don't do fire anymore fire's hot and i'm not doing it yeah All right, folks. Well, with that it, hope you enjoyed this. Tell us what you think. I think I'm about done saying the same. uh, Please send us your feedback. You know we want your feedback, so send it to us. And with that, I hope you enjoyed this. Look forward to more episodes. If there's anything you want to hear about or anything you don't know about in the wilderness rescue environment, send us your questions at uh, the show at emsonthemountain.com, and we will – probably eventually get enough questions by about 2027 or 2028 to actually put on an episode where we're actually answering listener questions. So if you've got them, send them. Thanks. If you have any questions or comments or ideas for show topics, you can send us an email at the show at emsonthemountain.com or hit us up on social media. We can be found on Facebook and Instagram at EMS on the mountain, Twitter at EMS OTM, or you can engage with us and a whole community of wilderness EMS professionals at locals.com slash wilderness EMS. Until the next episode, thanks for joining us. And until we see you on the mountain, train hard, be safe, and do good work.